that garage was, you know, kind of down a deep, down a, a steep, muddy hill, didn't have a bathroom. I had a fireplace for heat, but it was my shop and I called it home, you know. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Brian Seitz, owner of the furniture business Urban Industrial Design. From building a wine rack in a one-car garage to sell on Etsy, to building out full wine bars and event spaces and breweries and restaurants in a custom 10,000-square-foot shop space, Brian has come a long way. He has built a furniture business, as well as a few other types of woodworking businesses, with multiple employees and years full of happy clients. Doing all this through grit and determination, but also through planning and foresight. So follow along as we talk about the customer service balance, the importance of knowing your numbers, how to grow with the future in mind, and much more. So let's start the episode and hear about Brian's story in his own words. Yeah, my story starts right about seven years ago. Um, I had bought a, a little single family house, two bed, one bath and renovated the whole thing. And I realized I didn't have any furniture, went furniture shopping and, and realized that everything out there was just kind of junk, wasn't interested in it. And along the way, I actually uh, discovered Etsy. And I realized that there was an entire market out there for this sort of handmade, unique furniture. So I kind of went down that rabbit hole furniture and it was just absolutely intrigued with these different designs and, you know, what kind of style do I want my house to be? Um, and ultimately, I kind of said, like, I, I could build that, right? And so I ended up at Lowe's, bought some lumber, bought some tools, some metal pipe and slammed together what I called furniture. And although very entry level, you know, I was kind of proud of it. Um, I built my own desk, um, some other things. But one of the things that I did build was a wine rack. And I hung it on the wall, put some photos online. And a buddy of mine actually said, uh, hey, that, that's pretty cool. Like, could you build one for me and, and how much? And it just it clicked, man. I just said, wow, could I make money doing this? Could I maybe pay off these tools that I had, had bought? Yeah, let me let me quote this out. What's my time? What's my material? And so it just kind of clicked from there. And I went immersed myself in furniture. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop working in the garage nights and weekends. Anything I could do to get my hands on the next project, I was all about it. I had no previous woodworking experience, although I had worked with my hands on dirt bikes and, and race cars and whatnot growing up. I had literally never had any interest in cutting wood. So I had no experience, very entry level skill set and tools, but I was just interested. So I think that's part of how all this came to life is just the overall interest. I love hearing that that kind of story because people look at furniture and they think I can do it myself. I can save money. But then there's that that click and you said it yourself you there was that that moment where you realized i can also make money i'm not just saving money i can make money building furniture and that's when it goes from just a hobby to a real business and you definitely had that moment once you had that moment what was your next move cuz some people have that idea but it stays a hobby so how did you take it from being a hobby to the business that it is today. What was your next step? So I, I actually started my own Etsy store, right? So Urban Industrial Design was born. And um, so like I said, I was just 
cooking as much as many hours as I could nights and weekends. But what ended up what ended up happening was I walked into my full time job, did design and engineering and whatnot, and there was HR with forty chairs lined up. They canned the whole office that day. And I was fortunate that I was part of a skeleton crew um, to sort of remain on for the next six weeks to wrap up operations. So that told me I got a six week heads up to figure this little tiny part time business out because it's time to sink or swim. And if I sink, I can find another job. I'm not worried about that, but I'm interested in swimming. So how am I what am I going to do to bring this little business to life? So I took uh, uh, the small severance that I had and I put, uh, I think it was about two grand into a website and I just did anything that I could to stir up whatever work I could using my little one car garage and the basic tools that I had. So uh, I think it was summertime of 2016 or so that I was full time in my garage doing anything that came my way, primarily anything, you know, rustic accent wall, barn doors farm tables, that sort of thing kind of matched the style at the time and also matched my skill set. There's always that question of when's the right time to start my own business. I I love what I'm doing, but I don't know when the right time is. Either you have a job or you have family obligations and not saying those things are not important. But if you do want to do this, you have to make the jump at some point and you were unlucky or lucky to be forced into it. But I think that really shows that there isn't the right time. You could have been planning this for years and years or for the six weeks that you had to get it up and running, but you took it and you ran with it and you made that jump and it worked for you. So once you got the website up, once you said, I'm pushing out all this product, I'm making all this product, I'm selling it, what was the next big milestone for you? Where did that go next? I'm making furniture, and now I'm turning it into a furniture business. Yeah, so um, I'd say the next move was um, moving into my first sort of real shop. So I was completely jammed up in, in my one car garage working on one, maybe two projects at a time. Um, but a buddy of mine had actually bought a duplex um, down the road from me and behind it was this sort of big six car garage. And so I messaged him and said, you know, what's the story? Is that, you know, available, this, that? And he said, yeah, 600 bucks a month. You can have it. I was like, oh, uh oh, uh, I don't know what, how am I going to afford that? <laughs> and so I said, I'll, I, I don't, I need the space. The business can't grow without the space. I'll figure it out. So I moved into that shop um, around October, and what I did was I used a, a big plastic sheet and cut the uh, garage in half, and I rented out winter storage spots for three cars, 100 bucks a pop, for the next six months. So I cut my rent in half, eased my uh, nerves a little bit, and obviously come you know April, I couldn't wait to get those cars out of there because I needed the space, and by then I could definitely afford the space; it wasn't an issue. So. That garage was, you know, kind of down a deep, down a, a steep, muddy hill, didn't have a bathroom. I had a fireplace for heat, but it was my shop and I called it home. You know, at the time I was, you know, very entry level tools. I had a little 12 inch DeWalt planer, um, no dust collection. And I was just, I don't know, I was just fortunate to have some really good jobs come my way. Some incredible restaurants locally that, that leaned on me to kind of bring their space to life. Um, I was hustling anything I could do, anything I could sell on Etsy, Craigslist, Facebook, whatever it was, I was really doing my best to get my name out there. And 
towards the, I think we were there for about two years. Um, and kind of towards the end of that time, I remember we did a, uh, a, a local brewery here. They got a big name in the area and we were fortunate to be chosen to outfit their entire space. These guys had no idea that I was working in this, this little six car garage down, down a muddy hill that had no heat and no bathroom. And I was building all of their tables for their restaurant. And, you know, I remember at, at the end of that job, I got a $38,000 check and all along I have operated and still to this day operate in only cash. We don't borrow money for any reason. And so I ended up, uh, I ended up taking all of that money and finally investing in machines from start to finish. The business, um, evolved quite a bit over that time period. In that shop, you were making massive projects for restaurants and breweries and high-end products, even though the shop was the exact opposite of that. But you don't have to tell people where you're making it. You just have to deliver it. You also hired your first full-time employee in that space, and you were buying tools. And it was really the, the transition of the actual business part, learning how to invoice and learning how to deal with clients and learning how to take that money in and make sure it's keeping your business afloat. What were you doing in that time when you were, yes, hustling to get the business, the furniture building part going, but what were you doing on the business side to make sure that this money coming in was working for your business and wasn't just going out the door? Yeah, the, the answer to that is Matt. He's a, uh, a business advisor of mine, essentially a subcontractor, and he is my numbers guy. So he runs all my payroll. Um, he knows the ins and the outs of this business in the number sense. So if I ask him a question and say, hey, our retail area has, you know, it looks like our bins are doing pretty good, but I have no idea, like, which one is making more money than the other, any random question couple minutes with uh, the powers that be with Excel. And man, he's got all these answers for me through numbers and through data. And we started collecting this data about three years ago. And because of that, we've been able to produce accurate forecasts of sales for the business um, based on, you know, again, previous data. We now have an entire tracking uh, system through Shopify. So every single slab that leaves the shop is tracked. We understand what we paid for it, what the profit was on it. Um, we can answer so many different questions about the business through this data that we've been accumulating over the last three years. And Matt, Matt is the answer to that. He's been with me for, like I said, about three years now. Uh, he works here in the office one day a week, and then uh, he's remote the other days. He's pretty much just part-time, um, but he's able to do some higher level business administration type stuff for me. You kind of hinted at a little bit when you're saying the the slab sales and things like that, but you do a lot more than just the custom furniture that you started. But before we get into that, let's talk about your space and how you moved from that space to something bigger, something that made more sense for the type of jobs that you were taking in. Yeah, so uh, we did about two years in the uh, that six-car garage there, and then we jumped to our old shop, Lechico Road. That was about 5,000 square feet, and that was a big shop. We paid market rate for rent, which was a big number at the time. And so, again, back to the beginning of, you know, I, I know we need this, 
this is the right move for the business. I can feel it. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to figure it out, but I trust myself that I'll figure this out. And, you know, through, again, as interior designers, architects, kind of starting to, to network with the crowd here in the, the greater capital region of New York, you know, we're, we're working with some of these higher end home builders and, and designers, and we're delivering, like I said, quality products on time. And it's just a smooth customer interaction that really allowed the business to, again, organically grow. And we had the space to do it. In this space, we acquired a, uh, a 5 by 10 uh, CNC machine. We have a, a 36 inch, a new 36 inch time saver planer sander combo. That's an incredible machine. And through some upgrades of machines, we're definitely able to move faster and quicker with the jobs that we had. And all along, just again, always kind of putting the customer first and ensuring that the process that they experience is as absolutely smooth as possible. So although our uh, old shop, Leshekill, was, was a great space, I knew that we weren't going to be there any longer than our five-year lease. It, it was time to find a new home, and I hate moving. <laughs> so we were hoping for something a little more permanent. Uh, so I acquired a piece of land, and with the piece of land came all the permits and approvals for a 10,000-square-foot warehouse. Uh, we had to really dig deep to, to find that, but the deal worked out. And um, let's see, over June of last year, we started the building, and right around Christmas, um, if 22, we moved into the building. So we've been here about three months now. Uh, it's a brand new construction. It's 10,000 square feet, and it's really given us the space uh, to continue to grow the business. That's amazing. Building the dream shop. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> hasn't been easy, man. Let me tell you. It's what everyone's looking for, though. So living the dream. Yeah. You're doing custom furniture for residential and commercial. You also are selling slabs. You're also doing classes. And there's another part of your business that you've worked sort of into the mix as well. And I want to get into that a little bit just because it's great for people to hear that there's a lot going on under the surface. It's a duck that looks calm on the top of the lake, but underneath it's treading water and doing a million different things to run a business and to be able to keep all the employees and all the paychecks and all the rent going out on time. So you have the furniture business, you have the custom furniture business, you're selling slabs, you're selling classes, you're doing events. And then what else are you doing on the side? We, uh, we acquire uh, trees and we kind of network with a lot of the local tree companies. We acquire trees and um, we actually outsource the milling. A uh, quick shout out to my guy, Nick, Hartwood Custom Timbers. Um, he mills for me about four months out of the year uh, full time. And yeah, he's sort of the uh, what brings all these trees to life. Yeah. So on, on the back end of our business, um, I have a floating shelf business. And so what these are are... Um, a premium grade knotty pine in various lengths, 15 inches, two feet, three feet. And so uh, over the course of about 35 different SKU numbers, we sort of made this business on Amazon and Wayfair and Overstock and Walmart and all these different platforms that we sell um, a large quantity with a low profit margin product. And this side of the business, uh, we have two full-time employees, two part-time employees, and for me, although at the beginning it was a lot of work, at this point, that side of the business is on autopilot for me. A quick 30-minute conversation on a Monday morning, and that side of the business is good to go. And what it does is 
it creates nice, consistent cash flow on a regular basis. And, you know, back to, to COVID, I mean, the numbers, the sales of our floating shelf business skyrocketed because everyone's in their home. And so we were able to kind of excel during a time that, that some other people may not have been. And that's because we had this other leg to our business that has proven itself time and time again. Again, nice, consistent cash flow. It's an excellent product. And um, we just have an incredible amount of sales, man. I feel like every house in the United States at this point has a pair of our shelves in it. That does sound nice. And it's it's a consistent product with ordering and, and getting orders, but it's also a consistent product with the way it's made. And that is a big key when you're doing something that you're selling a lot of. With custom furniture, even if it's, in the same style or in the same look, it's still custom for each one of those clients. But having a collection of furniture where you're repeating things or like you having a product that you're repeating things, it gives you a little bit more breathing room when you're figuring out how long it takes to build, what it takes to price, timing, all of those things. So consistency, yes, in sales, but consistency in the product you're putting out definitely has been the backbone of your business that you've been able to expand in all these different directions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the uh, the floating shelf side of things is a, a well-oiled machine with assembly line that we have, the, the material we bring it in. We have a nice upcut saw. We have an incredible drill press. Everything's on a conveyor, this this beautiful brush sander. You know, we've invested in this this product uh, for about five years now, and it's just it's just been so consistent. I really wish we could take that and bring it onto the furniture side because it's awfully tough to streamline furniture, although it's something that we're kind of working on as of now, a little bit of a more of a furniture line, a number of different products that are available through the website, select your size, select your wood type, select your table base. And without a, a, a long conversation, um, a, everything's a different size kind of thing. You're able to order a table without, you know, kind of like I said, a long conversation. So that's something that we're working towards uh, in the sense of streamlining on the furniture side. But, you know, kind of our core has been everything we do is custom and we don't start on it until we get 50% down. That's sort of been the business model all along. And to this day, it's it's still right where we want to be. You're doing big projects for commercial spaces. You're doing restaurants and bars. And when you're getting those projects, talk through the process of when they come to you, how you're bidding it out, if you're going back and forth with competitors and trying to get the right price from that. How does that process work when you're bidding out a much larger job than, say, just one table for a residential client? Yeah, so the, the commercial work is unique. It Sometimes these jobs can take you know, months and months and months, sometimes two years for it to really kind of finally come to life. Um, it's important that you understand the scope of work, the full scope of work. You need to understand that things are going to change over time. And chances are good that we're coming in at the very, very end of the job to deliver or install these final pieces. And, you know, chances are good. My schedule doesn't matter. It's whatever the GC schedule is. And it's going to be plus or minus could be weeks. And I have to be prepared to completely switch gears to either do the delivery early or chances are late. 
And so bidding these out is a little unique because I have all of my own material. So some other people might have to go out and, and sort of start um, acquiring pricing and different things from different manufacturers that have the inventory. I kind of just most of the time go out and walk my my wood yard and make sure I have the material on hand. I know what I paid for that wood. I know what it's going to take to dry it. Um, so I'm able to sort of undercut in a way because I'm supplying my own material. And so through some, you know, some further conversations, understanding the scope of work, generally speaking, I'll quote things as a time and material um, scope. So, you know, generally 150 bucks an hour plus material costs. That's usually where we land. The more complicated projects tend to go for a little bit more, but the, the larger quantity repetition projects tend to go for a little less. Um, we just quoted a, a 46 table restaurant top at a Walnut and I have all the material here and the time frame works that I can have all the material done and dry. So that price would have been, you know, probably five to six grand higher had I had to go out and buy all my own material. But because I have it here and I'm able to, my price is about $5,000 lower than what I think a competitor might quote that job out. And so I, I think having my own material starting doing that about four years ago has really proven to over time be a, a wise decision that I had made and where it's something we're going to continue to do. But understanding the scope of work, really taking the time to read the drawings, um, having a good conversation with the interior designers, knowing what their expectations are, kind of crossing all the T's and dotting the I's, I think is important because otherwise, if you're not on top of it, it might not work out for you. And be be open to the fact that things are going to change over time. What, what you thought was going to fit into the space the as-built dimensions, yeah, they're definitely going to be different. You have to be prepared to to kind of adjust on the fly as well. You've talked a lot about customer service and being great to work with, and that's that's great. There's no argument from me that your business has succeeded because you've given good customer service to people who want to buy things from you. That's a great thing to do. But there is always that line of when you're sharing too much or you're you're bringing the client in too much and they're making changes at the last minute and it's hurting the flow of the project. Where's that balance for you of having great customer service, but also knowing that you have to run a business make this project in the timeline that's needed and put it out there? Man, that's a tough question. And it, it's taken me a few years to answer that properly. It's taken me a few years for me be, to be able to say, hey, like, actually, there's going to be a charge for this. And I can't go and make 10 different samples. The quote involves three different samples, any additional samples, 100 bucks. And so what that does is that kind of starts to keep some of these interior designers in line a little bit. They know that if they um, kind of run with it, then there might be some extra fees along the way and they may not want to necessarily pay them. A lot of times I'll, I'll quote a project and I know, hey, I'm, I'm willing to put 10 hours into the design and the upfront cost of this project. When I hit the 10 hour mark, I'm going to let you know and there's going to be an additional fee for any time prior. Uh, sometimes we do... Uh, a rendering for a potential conference table. And we're good for two revisions. Anything after that is 150 bucks per revision. So I, I always try to sort of lay out some of these facts ahead of time. And I don't do it, you know, in an effort to just be to be blunt. I, I do it because 
you know, there's such a limited amount of time during the week. And man, these weeks just fly by. I need to ensure that my time is being spent where it should be. And that's with bringing customers in this door. But I need to ensure that I'm not spending too much time doing things that aren't generating money. Setting a little boundaries, I think it's a good thing. Uh, honestly, I think some of these interior designers and whatnot might actually appreciate it because it keeps the project moving without getting held up. When you're building furniture at the start, you're putting a table out into the world. You're selling a chair to a client. You're doing smaller projects, some bigger projects. But at some point, you realize you have a lot of pieces of furniture out in the world and you need to be able to protect yourself if anything bad happens to those pieces of furniture or to the client who's purchasing those pieces of furniture. When you're doing a project where you're putting out 46 tabletops, it becomes very apparent that you need to understand the legal ramifications of putting that out there and explain that to your client. On your website, you have a lot of this information in your refund policy and and all of the legal coverage that comes with that. Can you talk through how that has evolved from the beginning when you were just in your one car garage making stuff for Etsy to now when you're doing really large scale projects and how you're covering yourself to make sure you're in the clear if anything goes wrong? Yeah, so it's taken me a while to to figure this out, but what I do to kind of two layers here. So I do have a formal contract. We did work with an attorney. We drafted this up. It talks all about um, what I'm liable for, what the client is liable for. Um, it talks about the different humidities in the space and how that affects the furniture. A lot of the legal things, I think it's about seven pages long. Any con- any um, piece of furniture that comes through this shop over a thousand dollar value has a signed contract behind it. Now, over, I think maybe about three years, I've literally never had to refer to that contract. We've never had an issue. However, the other thing I do is when I deliver a piece, I have the do and don't list, right? So you got a, a unique piece of furniture. You need to understand what you can and can't do with it. And you got to understand that a lot of these people, although they may have an appreciation for a nice piece of furniture, they may not necessarily understand wood movement. So this do and don't list, you know, it says a lot of things like you can't put a hot plate on a solid wood top. Is it a good idea to use coasters? Yeah, absolutely. Don't go away for six, uh, six weeks in the summertime and turn your air conditioning off. Um, there's a lot of things on this do and don't list that hopefully that they're following that ultimately allows this table to live a successful life. Um, you know, we do some things on the back end too. Our table bases have a, a solid top plate on them with elongated holes. The, all of these tables are going to expand and contract. You have to let them. Anytime that you try to constrict them, they're going to cup, curl, or crack. Something's going to happen. That pressure is going to go somewhere. So it's very important that you build the table for success in a climate-controlled space. You educate the client uh, so they understand what you can and can't do with this table. And then behind all that, the very last thing is a formal contract in the unlikely event that you need to refer to it. It's there. Contracts are scary for a lot of people. They are definitely necessary, but that do and don't list is a great sort of in-between step for people who don't feel 
comfortable just sending a contract out to a client and saying, sign this because they feel like it's impersonal. If you add that do and don't list, there's that nice, that nice in between where it's still casual. You're saying, Hey, don't mess up the table in these ways because nobody wants to have to go to a contract. Nobody wants to have to take it to court. If you just follow these instructions, then everything's going to be okay. So that is that is great advice for that that more casual in-between aspect of, of selling furniture. You've shared that advice and a lot of other great advice throughout this entire episode. And I want to ask you a, a question that I like to ask, and that is for people who are starting their company and want to get into it or have been doing it for a long time like you have, but don't feel like they're getting the results that they want out of their company. What's some advice that you could share with people who want to be successful like you've been? Yeah. So some of the things I've learned along the way, you know, you can't, you can't continue to do the same thing and expect a different result. Sometimes you got to try something new, even if it might be the wrong thing to do at the time. You got to try it. You got to do something. Um, I think it's very important to don't be afraid to take a little bit of a, of a jump, go out on the limb a little bit further than you think you might be willing to. Um, sometimes when your, your back's up against the corner, that's when you make the game time decision that is going to bring your business to that next level. One of the things that we've always done is we've always operated in all cash. We've never borrowed money for machines. You know, business is risky as it is. Why add more risk to it? Let your business organically grow. You know, I, I think it's very important to know your numbers. I thought I knew my numbers originally. They're all up in my head. And I, I try to answer some questions and I can't answer them. But we've been collecting data for about three years now. And, and some of these questions that I ask, we're able to get like definitive numbers. And we can understand, okay, it makes sense to put more effort into this and less effort into that. And we're making these decisions based on data. So understanding your numbers can oftentimes answer a question that you, you might want to go one way, but the data says go another. Sometimes you follow that. You know, don't be afraid to, to try something new. I, had, I knew nothing about milling wood. And now we, we mill a ton of wood. I knew nothing about drying wood. We went out and bought an eye dry and I said, I'll figure it out. Um, so making some of those, uh, you know, kind of a little bit of a leap of faith in the business is sometimes one of the only ways that you're going to get ahead. Great advice. And knowing the numbers is definitely one of the, the main things, but all those other, all those other points are, are very well received. So thank you so much for sharing all that. I, I truly appreciate you sitting down and giving everybody a look into your business and sharing the good and the bad parts of your business to get it to where it is today. So I truly appreciate all your time and wish you nothing but success moving forward. Awesome. Appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you got value out of it, please think about leaving a review and subscribing wherever you listen. To learn more about the series, please visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime with questions or guest suggestions to hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can find me at The Build with Ethan on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show and can't wait to bring you the next one.